Hey everyone, I'm Sujin Park, and welcome to Open Account, where we take an unconventional and honest approach to conversations about money. When Ankwa Bank approached me about doing this podcast, it made sense that a bank with a history of connecting money to human potential would want to have a different approach to talking about it. Money is often a taboo subject for a lot of us, but we also know that telling stories of what happens with money when it's not in the bank is sometimes the best way to understand how it matters in our lives. You take this rational concept of money and bring in the complicated, emotional, and sometimes messy lives of humans, and that's where things really get interesting. And that's where we begin. So join us. This is Open Account. Open Account is created by Umqua Bank and produced in collaboration with Slate Group Studios. I didn't think I was smart. I didn't think I had anything to offer anybody. Your whole life becomes about subsisting. How do we make it through the day? It's never about a future. It's how do we make it through the day? Where are we going to sleep tonight? When we started Open Account, our goal was to talk about people and their relationship to money, how they use it, sometimes lose it, the way it changes beliefs, affects relationships. Over the past two seasons, we've heard incredibly compelling stories from handling money in marriage and divorce to various paths people take to achieve the American dream. We've covered it all. But the one story that we haven't yet told is about people who don't have any money. Now, I'm not talking about a rags to riches story or being a freelancer who happens to be broke. I'm talking about people who have never had money and not sure if they ever will. People living in poverty. So today, we are diving headfirst into a conversation about what not having any money really means on an intimate level. Here is Dr. Donna Beagle, president of Communication Across Borders, a consulting firm created to helping people understand the causes and effects of poverty. She's a graduate of Portland State University, where she received her doctorate in educational leadership and even has a series of classrooms dedicated in her honor. But she is one of those academics that walks the talk. She comes from generational migrant labor poverty, the most impoverished population in our nation. She was married at 15, couldn't read a newspaper until the age of 26, the only person in her family that has never been incarcerated. And she is one of the most powerful voices in the conversation around poverty in America. And Donna Beagle is our guest for this episode of Open Account. I was born into migrant labor, generations of poverty. And what that means is most of my family members, they can't read and write. So if they sign their name, it's actually an X. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of jobs that you're going to get when you can't read and write are those jobs that are temporary, seasonal, jobs you don't get treated with respect, jobs you don't move up in. Mm -hmm. I spent pretty much 28 years of my life homeless. My only experience with police officers they were either coming to take somebody I loved away. They were either there for that or they were there to evict us because we couldn't pay rent. So my childhood was constant evictions and moving. We would put our stuff in a storage shed and then we wouldn't have the money to pay the storage bill. So they would auction off all of our things. But I bring to the conversation the lived experience of being born into the deepest poverty in the country and grew up really believing that people didn't care. So I don't think we think about those impacts. Mm. 
Because not only do you have sort of the learned and book knowledge about poverty, the causes of poverty and what it is, but like you said, you have this life experience. There's nothing more clear to me about what you're doing than that. I mean, just how lucky in some strange way that your organization and that we all are to hear your story, but also to understand it in an intellectual way, like systemically, sure. what poverty means. Most of the people who train and teach about poverty, most of the people who do research on poverty, they haven't lived it. And so they're looking into the lives of people who live in the crisis of poverty through the eyes of a middle-class person's mm. experience. So people always fall short. Mm. It's like, why don't they just? Why aren't they just? Like, my parents never went to a school conference. What do people say about those parents? Mm. Typically, it's they don't care. They don't love their kids. My mom would say, I ain't going in there and make a fool out of myself. Mm. Those people want to talk about school. I don't know anything about school. What's the point of me going in there? If anybody had asked her about her kids, she'd still be talking because mm. pride and joy. We look in at people and we say, well, if my kid had a school conference, I would go. And that means that I care and love my child. So if you're not doing what I do, then... There's the value so, judgment. So the logic really falls apart when you understand it from the perspectives of the people who've lived it. You know, people aren't going to tell you, well, the reason I'm in poverty is because I'm lazy. Yeah. That's a value judgment. People are going to tell you, I'm working hard. I mean, that really is what you're talking about, this sort of societal blame on the individual, that poverty is someone's fault, that it's a character flaw that just has to be fixed or overcome. So what did you think about yourself in the context of that? You believe the deficit messages. I didn't think I was smart. I didn't think I had anything to offer anybody. Your whole life becomes about subsisting. How do we make it through the day? It's never about a future. It's how do we make it through the day? Where are we going to sleep tonight? And where are we going to get day. food today? Every day. That's generational poverty. I'm just working class to... poverty, it's more like how do we make it to the end of the month? Right. <laughs> and right. working class poverty has a little bit more sense of control because if you work 40 hours a week for McDonald's, they have to pay you. Yeah. But generational poverty, a lot of the jobs are temporary seasonal kinds of jobs or you're on surviving on disability mm. uh, or subsistence welfare and mm. your case manager can subjectively say you don't get your check you didn't do the right thing mm. so in generational poverty there's much more of a life happens to you you don't get to make life happen tell me about your life and and what life was like for you as a child what your childhood was like well, we, we like we, how far back? First of all, does generational poverty exist in in your family? Would you say? Well, in deep generational yep. poverty, you don't have any records, so you're constantly being evicted. Your stuff's mm. being left. I tell people, I don't know what I am. Am I mm. am I Swedish? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no there's no history. You lose your history. So my grandma was in deep poverty. My mom was in deep poverty. As far back as I know is my grandma. Yeah. And my grandpa died at age 46. And her 46. recollection of, oh, 46. Yeah. Really and young. See, I didn't know people could live past 60. I thought your teeth belong in a cup after the age of 30. And when I got to university, I started meeting people's parents and grandparents. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, people live that long. And they have their teeth. I was stunned. Because uh, my brother Wayne, his whole mouth full of super glue. Because he accidentally discovered while opening a tube of super glue that it deadened the pain in his mouth. So whenever he has tooth pain, he just puts super glue on it. Every time somebody had a toothache, they just pull it. I have a friend who all she does is pull people in jail's teeth all day long. They don't fix them. 
And then how does that affect getting a job? I mean, you just think of the ramifications. What do we think when we see somebody with rotten teeth or no teeth? Well, they're drug addicts. Why aren't we thinking, I wonder if they've ever had a dentist? I wonder if they've ever had nutrition to build strong, healthy teeth. We, we go to blame and judgment because of our ignorance about poverty and the people who live in it. Even in welfare, you know, people believe welfare is a party, people have babies to get welfare, all these stereotypes and myths. In 1986, my welfare check for me, my six-year-old Jennifer, and two-year-old Daniel was $408. A month. A month. My rent was $395 in, in a neighborhood nicknamed Felony Flats. Okay, so your your rent is $46. $408. $408. And the rent is? $395. Okay. $13 left. $13 left. Plus, they gave me $150 in food stamps. Okay. So you hear the rhetoric now, you got to cut food stamps, you got to cut food stamps. Well, 93% of the people on food stamps are working, they're children, or they're disabled. And if you're on food stamps, you get $1.47 per meal. So when my welfare check was $408, when I had $13 left, I got evicted. And my welfare worker said, since you have an eviction notice, you're now mandated to go to money management classes before you receive your next check. So think about the message to me. I, I'm, I'm thinking, I can't get this right. I, something's wrong with me. Yeah. And you're just constantly pelted with that. Or they would say things mm. like, we have this wonderful program. If you can be responsible and save some money, we'll match whatever you save and you can get out of poverty. Yeah, I got 13 bucks left. You know, I'm making choices between the rent and utilities every month. And I worked my whole life. I worked in the fields. I got a job at a foam rubber factory at 15 in Portland, Oregon. And they told me, we don't give raises. We don't give promotions for the first two years. But if you stay two years, you get both. So at 17, I go for my performance review and they fire me for being too young to be in the company. And that's still happening today. Mm -hmm. um, so you get two steps forward, you get knocked two steps back. Yeah. You touched upon this, and when I was doing the research for this, these are terms I had never heard. Generational poverty, mixed-class poverty, mm -hmm. situational poverty, and you just brought one up, immigrant poverty. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about some of the differences and why those nuances are really important to the conversation. Sure. So situational poverty is the type of poverty where you grow up in a middle-class environment. And you learn middle-class vocabulary from the mm. womb because you're around people who know those words. You uh, learn middle-class sentence structure. You learn middle-class expectations. Like in the middle-class world, you're taught you want to make it, you get educated, you get skilled. In poverty, you're taught you want to make it, you work hard. Well, two-thirds of the people in poverty are working. I saw people work hard my whole life and still make choices between rent and food. So in situational poverty, it's where someone's grown up in a middle-class environment mm -hmm. and then maybe a divorce. Maybe they're downsized. During something the, happens. Yeah, There's during like the Great Recession, happens. like, for example, a That's, lot of people mm -hmm. fell into poverty. And, and those are the folks, I mean, it's painful. I mean, mm -hmm. you lose your father at 12. That's painful. But it's very different. I mean, this guy, imagine if he came into contact with someone who'd lived in a car their whole life or fought their brothers for the back window of the car, which was my story. He's not thinking about what would 12 years of having a father who's a physician do for my vocabulary, my teeth, my health, mm. my stability, my exposure to middle-class possibilities. Mm. So how do people get treated? It's usually like, hey, I did it. Why can't you? Mm. We don't have a clear definition. So Even within 
you know, the, the def- category of poverty. Yes. It isn't just one size fits all. Within uh-uh. that, there are these different nuances sure. that, that have real life effect. Sure. You know, if you're facing immigrant poverty, you have not only the I can't find affordable housing, I can't get child care, I can't get transportation. But then on top of that, you have language barriers, cultural barriers, prejudice, discrimination, racism, two huge barriers to developing your potential. In generational poverty, you have you typically aren't around anybody. I didn't know the words my teachers would use. And I would say, what does that word mean? And they would say, go look it up in the dictionary. So I go to the dictionary. There's five more words I don't know. And there's not a human being in my environment to ask, what does this word mean? And it wasn't only the words. You know, when people give examples or they explain something, like a teacher's explaining a subject, you pull the examples from your lived experience. In working class poverty, for example, those are folks who are living paycheck to paycheck, and they don't have a lot left over. They're typically renting. They're not owners of the land. There's commonalities between generational and working class, like they both internalize the poverty and come to believe that they're the cause of it. I mean, we are the only country in the world that teaches our people they are the cause of poverty. Because we don't talk about poverty, we don't teach about poverty, people in the United States, they internalize it. They come to believe you get all these strong Mm. messages that it's you. And that is the cycle that you had grown up in and that you had seen the adults in your life growing up in. I mean, I think that's an interesting thing because I... I grew up with very little money, but indifferent. It wasn't generational poverty. I think it was much more immigration poverty, situational poverty even. And as a child, you look to the people, the grown-ups in your life, to create the world around you and to give you a context for seeing the world. So even when it comes to money, I was taught you don't put money in a bank because they're going to give you a whole bunch of words you don't understand. You're going to have to go to a bank machine or a teller and speak a language I don't understand. So you get your money, you get it in cash, you put it in a box, and you hide it somewhere in the house, you know. I was camping last summer with a bunch of privileged kids, and I saw a dime near the fire pit. And I was like, oh, a dime, you guys, look! And the kids looked at me like, it's a dime, Donna, So I had to dig it out. They would not dig it out. I will dig a penny out of the trash. Most people won't. That instinct still stays with you. Even though you have the PhD degree, (laughs) even though you've traveled the world, that instinct is... I know what it's like to not have, you know, your 10 cents short for your milk, put it back. When I first met my second husband, he comes from a plumbing family, but they owned the plumbing company. So different social class. I tell people he grew up National Geographic. I grew up National Enquirer. You know, we know very different things. I have to teach him a lot. Uh, <laughs> but he would say to me, Donna, I just I don't understand why why you couldn't just like get up enough change and buy a cube of butter if you didn't have butter. And I say, Chuck. There's no change in the couch. If you're from generational poverty, you can dig and dig and dig. And nobody else has a penny to lend you. I judge people's wealth by how much change they have laying around. I get in somebody's car, there's change there. I'm like, you're wealthy. (laughs) I see the world differently because of that experience. What do you think was that moment that changed things? So that before and after moment. And I want you to speak to a moment where something shifted inside of you internally where you began to see, wow, this is not the way it has to be. And not only that, that I don't have to make these choices. I was 26 years old and I got into a pilot 
welfare to work program. So I was a fluke. I got into this pilot program, and the only reason I went there is because I didn't know what else to do. Where were you at that point in your life? Tell me. My marriage had ended. I married Jerry, who was also from generational migrant labor poverty, and we lived our whole married life exactly like as kids. We worked that day for food that night, or worked in temporary seasonal jobs, or minimum wage kind of jobs where you never earn enough. Jerry went to high poverty schools for seven years. He, he could barely read and write. So the kinds of jobs, again, that you're going to get are not going to pay a living wage. So we had divorced, and Jerry had moved into a car that we bought at an auction for $25. I applied for welfare. That's when I got the $408 a month. And you were how old? 26. 26 with? I got married at 15, and I had two living children. Infant mortality rates for women in poverty in this wealthy country are equal to third world conditions. And a lot of the statistics I share, I know them firsthand. So I had six pregnancies when I lived in poverty and two lived. And then I had two babies in privilege and both were full-term healthy because I had health care, I had nutrition, I had stability, those things that matter. I had my utilities shut off. I went to a community action agency and I asked for help to get my lights on. And the lady said, oh, I think we can help you get your lights on. And there's this brand new pilot program starting up. You might want to check it out. And at that point, at 26, I'm not where I am today. I had lived 26 years in the war zone of poverty, watching people I love do without food, watching people be taken away, all the bullets of poverty. So I had massive attitude and incredibly powerful, smart mouth. So when the lady gave me the voucher for the utilities, she said, why don't you check out this program? I told her to go do the program. I had the attitude. I do conferences for people in poverty to remove the shame, rebuild the hope, reduce the isolation. But I start right out by saying, how many of you have attitude? And they're like, hell yeah. I'm like, anybody here got a smart mouth? You damn right. And then they're like, oh, good. Because you know what? If you watch your grandma do without medicine, you should have an attitude. That's normal. You watch your mom go hungry. You should get a smart mouth. So so I validate it, and then I say, but how's it work for you when you smart off to your food stamp worker? Get your food stamp. Okay, so I just channel it and yeah. show people how to use it. But I had that attitude, and I was really lucky that the woman didn't take my attitude personally. She knew it wasn't about her. It was about poverty. So she came right back, handed me the phone number, and said, just take the number. It might be helpful. Even got a little aggressive about putting the number in my hand. And I drove away thinking, she doesn't know anything. She looks like she's never had a problem in her life. And I passed by Pizza Hut. And I thought, what am I going to do? Because I can get my lights turned on now. But I have a 72-hour notice to move. And I have nowhere to go. My mom and dad, my dad was invalid. They lived in a trailer on 82nd Avenue in Portland. Two of my brothers and their families already lived in the 10-foot trailer. I was about to be on the streets with my two babies. I thought I could go back to work at Pizza Hut, but we still got evicted when I worked there. I couldn't make enough money to pay the rent and the utilities. The only thing Pizza Hut did for me was take me away from my kids, and they needed me. We were in crisis. So I called the number, and I got into this pilot program. The things that happened in that program were, were all significant, but one of the things that happened was the four women who were running the program stood up and told their life stories, and they were all middle-class women. Mm. And I had never heard a middle-class person's life story. So as they began to share their stories, I was like, what? You guys didn't get evicted? Mm-hmm. You've never been hungry? Because I bought into the thing that America teaches, and that is 
everybody starts the same. So I believe that, but I thought everybody had our lives. Everybody was born to parents who weren't educated. Everybody was born getting evicted. And somehow, through their intellect and their morals and their ethics, they were able to get out. I even, in my late teens, I thought, our family must have got the bad genes in the human gene pool. We got the bad genes. That's why we're in poverty. Because that's what we teach in this country. It's the people are the problem, not the affordable housing, the living wage job. So it was that moment of listening to their stories when I was like, oh, my God, you had a doctor? You had a dentist? Car insurance? Credit? I was like, oh, my gosh. So I had a little leather brown diary, and I opened it up, and I wrote, I'm going to try to get that GED they've been talking about. Then maybe I'll be somebody. I still have that diary today. But it was understanding that the people weren't better than me. They just had different experiences, different exposure. And so then it became, okay, maybe I'm not so stupid. Maybe I could get a GED. So that was my original goal was to get a GED at 26. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I got that. I was like, okay, that wasn't so bad. And by then, the pilot program, they had introduced me to... Diane in the financial aid office, and she talked, I'm sizing her up, and they're like, Diane's a mom like you. And I'm like, well, she's probably not all that bad as she's a mom. Because poverty doesn't teach you trust. Yeah. You don't trust anybody. So she said, Donna, you're eligible for financial aid. And I'm like, you better open your fancy computer and look up my credit because you're not going to want to help me. And she said, oh, we don't look at credit for financial aid. I'm like, I never heard of such a thing. So then they took me in the academic advising office and introduced me to Susan, established some rapport. And Susan said, Donna, if you study these kinds of things, these are the kinds of jobs you could get. And there was a title and the pay. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, if I could get that, I could so take care of my kids. Yeah. That's what we all want. Yeah. And so began my journey at Mount Hood Community College. And part of the way I was able to be successful in the community college was my brother Wayne spent most of his life in a cage, and he was reading. So when I couldn't understand the things that people were saying and I couldn't read my textbooks, I didn't know the words, I would write Wayne letters in prison. And I would say, Wayne, we're studying this. I got a test in three weeks. Find out everything you can. So he's in prison doing research and finding out all the stuff, writing me 20-page letters, 25-page letters. I'm not reading my textbooks. I'm reading Wayne's letters. I'm Because that made— I'm acing my test. Yeah, because he's, he's using He's teaching it to you in a Familiar vocabulary, mm-hmm. words I knew. Mm-hmm. And he's using examples from our childhood. Mm-hmm. I have a doctorate in educational leadership— And learning theory says humans can't grab information if you don't link it to something they know. So Wayne is explaining it to me. Here, Donna, they're talking about this. That's kind of, remember we lived at the Wheatland Ferry down by Salem? We were doing this. That's kind of what they're talking about here, giving me a a reference point. So I'm acing my test. Mm -hmm. I have nearly a four point at Mount Hood, but I can't read the textbooks Mm -hmm. until I got to University of Portland where I met Dr. Fulford. And he began helping me to build middle-class vocabulary. He began helping me to get the middle-class sentence structure. But he never said, you talk wrong. Mm -hmm. He said, you communicate beautifully. Works for you. He said, but let me give you the language that's going to help you succeed in education in the work world. It seems that if you look at the statistics, that poverty is, especially, you know, in a middle-class environment, really all around us in the sense, right, that it's probably in your school, it's in your neighborhood. It's probably the people you work with. 
And yet the divide that exists, this is what's so fascinating to me. The more you dig into this issue, you realize poverty isn't about money. It's less about money than people assume. That I could give someone in poverty, let's say, $10,000 or $100,000, and that would, would that fix it? What are the assumptions in that equation that we make? And kind of unpack that for me. Well, I think it is about money. I mean, money for housing, money for transportation, money for utilities, money for nutrition. We have a, a child care crisis in this country right now. You have middle class people leaving their jobs because their child care costs more than they're making. Yeah. And then you look at our families in poverty. They're pulling older they kids even. out of school mm-hmm. to watch the younger kids. So, so yeah, it is about money. We need to invest in our communities in affordable housing. Yeah. We need to talk about not people get a job. When you got census data saying two-thirds of the people are working 1.7 jobs and they can't afford rent. We need to talk about living wage jobs, affordable, excellent child care. You invest in children. You invest in our families. Stabilize a family. Watch them do better in school. <laughs> impacts it ripples. So now I see when you answer the question, yes, it is about money in a lot of ways. I mean, it is sometimes as simple as that. I mean, it is the wraparound services as well, because mm-hmm. I think giving a check to someone that doesn't know what to do with that check, we can see how that can go wrong. But it's in conjunction with this, mm-hmm. with the context of yes. like, okay, let's make different choices. For the first time mm-hmm. in your life, let's make a choice that moves you forward in this. So here's an example. Yeah. My welfare check, I told you, was $408. The average welfare check today, that was 1986 for a family of three. National average welfare check today for a family of three is 478 mm. So when I was in that pilot program, I went to my welfare worker after three weeks of the program, and I said, I had my little action plan, yeah. and I'm going to get a two-year degree. And my welfare worker said, you can't go to school. And I thought, oh, she doesn't understand my action plan. So I re-explained it to her. And she said, no, you, you don't understand. You can't go to school. You have to be available for any minimum wage job. And if you're not available, we sanction you. And I didn't know what that word meant then, but I quickly learned. It meant they would take the $408 and reduce it to 258 if I went to any kind of school or training. Because in most states, you're not allowed to go to school or training and continue to receive your welfare. Because the thought is they just need to be working. But most people are working. And we have a labor market that demands a skill or an education in order to earn a living wage. So I don't talk to people about getting jobs. I talk about earning a living. I tell people, you'll be poor your whole life. You don't get educated. You don't get skilled. You're going to be poor your whole life. And most people will then say, well, I'm not smart enough. I didn't do good in school. And I say, if you didn't learn in school, someone didn't teach you your learning style. Someone didn't use examples you could relate to. Mm -hmm. So you ask, what was that big moment? It was realizing that I wasn't the problem. Poverty was. And that, (laughs) that is enlightening. And in my doctoral research, I interviewed people from generational poverty who achieved bachelor's degrees. And the number one variable that helped them was the mentoring kept coming up. So the things that were key were somebody believed in me. Someone taught me that I already knew a lot that could be built on. And someone didn't judge me. Mm -hmm. 
and someone connected me to other people who could help in other areas. Like if I needed help with math or housing, they would connect me to those people. So I built a network. So that was number one thing that helped people. The number two thing was learning they weren't the cause of poverty. Yeah, That's what Paulo Freire, Brazilian scholar, he talks about United States, you're the only country that teaches your people they are the cause of poverty because you don't talk about affordable housing and living wage jobs, excellent schools for all of our children, excellent health care, child care, transportation systems that get people. You don't talk about that. You act like everybody has the same chance and they don't. I want to get to this question of, so here you have been for many years out in the world and teaching about this and no longer in poverty yourself. How has that impacted your family, one, and has it impacted even farther back? Because we know, I must imagine that it's impacting the future. Give me the the lay of, of how far and wide pulling one person out of poverty, out of generational poverty, what that means to this family tree. It's huge. It's huge. You know, I had to violate my values to be where I am today. For example, I would get my financial aid. Supposed to pay for a semester, books, all the things you need to do. And my brother's lights would be shut off. My mom would be out of milk. My value system, give it to him. But I knew if I did, we would all stay stuck. There would be nobody to help. So I'd cry myself to sleep. And I'd say, someday, someday I'm going to be in a position to help. Yeah. And I teach in my trainings, look in your hands. Can you help? And if you can, do. And if you can't, think about who's on your team or your organization, who else is in your organization, might be able to help that person leave them in a better place. And if they can't, think about your community. Who in your community could help? Have you ever had something happen in your life, but somebody understood you? And do you remember what that felt like? Yeah. Sometimes just somebody to understand and, and to feel like somebody cares. That's huge. Bigger picture in terms of money let me just share with you. Last year, Americans spent $815 million buying Valentines for pets. During America's great, great, great recession, we spent $26 billion on Hannah Montana merchandise, Disney Princess merchandise. We spent $33 billion on pet toys. This is not a land of scarcity. When we think scarcity, there's a tendency to hoard there's a tendency to kind of decide who's worthy of our help and who's not, who we'll invest in and who we won't. I think that if we want to have communities that everyone thrives, we have to address the poverty obstacles. It's hard to do that when you think it's the person. I see communities where they're opportunity communities. Everybody has access to good schools. Everybody has access to nutrition. And I think it's going to be a lot cheaper for taxpayers because we won't be paying for the symptoms of poverty, but we'll really be investing in our people. I saw a cartoon, and it was a boat. And the boat was sinking in the front, and people were falling in. And the people in the back said, glad I'm not in the front. We're all in this together. And there is absolutely nothing, not a piece of jewelry, not a trip, not a house, not a car, that will give you the feeling of making a difference for your fellow human beings and watching them really, truly find their potential and then give back. 
Donna Beagle's story is exceptional, and how she uses her lived experience to inform her professional work brings to light a very simple truth. Poverty is the most complex dimension of money in society. Before sitting down with Donna, I was so overwhelmed and paralyzed by this question. How are we supposed to solve poverty? The answer, I think, is that that's the wrong question. Trying to solve poverty as though it were an equation with a single solution only gets you into deeper waters. But breaking that large puzzle into smaller pieces seems like a more productive start. But once we've done that, what's next? Donna said one thing in our talk that struck me. For every single person that has overcome adversity in any situation, they can all answer this one question. Who helped you? And maybe that's where everyone starts, by deciding that everyone needs to help. Be sure to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and stay tuned for a lot more. Umqua's vision is to build a healthier relationship with money for everyone, no matter how much or how little you have. It inspires them to have these kinds of conversations every day. Be a part of this conversation. Tell us your story at madetogrow.com forward slash open account. We would love to hear from you.